welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. On this podcast, I tend to talk mostly to doctors or medical researchers. This week, I've got a slightly different episode. I'm talking to journalist Hadley Freeman about her experience in recovery as a patient suffering from anorexia. I was really keen to get Hadley on the podcast because I think anorexia nervosa, to give it its full name, is one of the most puzzling of all psychiatric conditions. It tends to start in adolescence, when a teenager will either gradually or suddenly stop eating. It's an incredibly hard disease to treat, with the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness, of around one third. And Hadley has just written a brutally honest book about her own experience as an anorexic teenager called Good Girls, A Story and Study of Anorexia, published by Fourth Estate and during the researching of it, also spoke to many experts and patients about this hugely perplexing condition. Reading this, really for the first time, I began to get insight into the thought processes that an anorexic patient might go through, which to an outsider or worried parent just seemed so illogical. And Hadley explains the advice she'd give to a parent who has a child with anorexia. But before we get to Hadley's interview, If you enjoy this podcast and would like to leave a review on Spotify or Apple, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. You can also become a paid supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash you or via PayPal on my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this podcast, so even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can find out more information about the pod on my website. Follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and on my Substack account, liz.tucker.substack.com. Many thanks. Now back to Hadley's interview. Hadley Freeman is a staff writer at the Sunday Times. Prior to that, she worked at The Guardian and her articles have appeared in many other publications too. Here's her interview. So Hadley, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Liz. I think one of the reasons I was so keen to talk is to find out about anorexia from a patient's perspective, because I think it's one of the psychiatric conditions that is hardest for people to understand. Was that your experience? Yes, no one seemed to be able to reach inside my mind, if that makes sense, until I finally found this wonderful therapist towards the end, who I call in the book JF. Everyone thought I just wanted to be thin. I wanted to look like a model. You know, I wanted to be pretty. You know, I was worried about being fat. I mean, that sort of touched the surface, but none of it really accessed how I felt on the inside. And it felt strange because, like you say, people look at anorexia and think it's the most illogical condition. But when you're in it, you just don't understand how anyone can think any differently. It just has its own set rules that make total sense when you're within it. And it seems that very few people understand them from the outside. Because often, and it is often women, Mm. they are highly articulate Mm. and intelligent. And that sort of makes it harder to understand. Yeah, completely. You know, it's easiest to understand, I think, as an expression of anxiety. Anorexia is anxiety about many things. It generally affects females. It's 90% at least suffered by girls and women, 10% boys and men. It almost invariably comes on in puberty. So there's anxiety about growing up and anxiety about being sexualized anxiety about their own sexuality, and a form of coping with past traumas, which can be relatively minor, that the sufferer might not even be consciously thinking of. 
it's like OCD in that it gives your mind something else to think about rather than the things that you're anxious about. And what you're suggesting in your book is it's not so much that there's a single trigger as much as a number of factors that come together. And then there's a sort of tipping point, which in your case was a girl in your class saying, I wish I was normal like you, which to anyone who doesn't have anorexia would seem a fairly innocuous remark. Yes, although it's funny, someone pointed out to me um, recently that actually that's almost a very zeitgeisty trigger because now everybody wants to have a special identity. That's true. To be, you know, unique in their way and special, putting themselves in little identity boxes. And the idea of just being normal is almost the worst thing in the world in this age of superheroes and 37 genders or whatever. Like the idea of being normal is so passe. And to me, it felt like someone saying, you are nothing, you are irrelevant, which I think is what normal sounds like to a lot of people. And there seem to be some cultural factors at play too, because as we said, it's largely female, but also anorexia seems to largely affect girls who are white. Yes, yes, which is a really interesting thing. And no one I spoke to could entirely explain it. You know, it used to be thought of as a a sort of upper middle-class illness, and that's not so true anymore. It is spread across the socioeconomic groups, but it is still mainly found in Caucasian societies, whereas bulimia is found within Black communities and Asian communities. I think there are factors within perhaps white communities that contribute to anorexia being used as an expression of anxiety for girls. Obviously, the value that we place on skinniness, that is less of an issue, for example, in Black communities. But it is hard to say, and people do wonder if there's metabolic factors or genetic factors, but the truth is we don't really know yet. Certainly in puberty, aside from the other changes that are happening, there are metabolic factors too, which are Mm -hmm. making big changes to our bodies. Totally. And it is interesting, the whole metabolic factors. That is a real area study that's grown a lot in the past decade. For me personally, I don't think metabolic factors were such a big thing. I mean, yes, I was naturally slim. So in some ways, it's easier for me to lose weight when I was 13, 14, when I started and when I carried on as a teenager, then perhaps it would be for someone else. But for me, it was so much about the emotions that I had inside of me and the lessons I'd internalized up to life until then, that it just became the natural response to all the feelings I had. And there was also a family history of anorexia. Yes. So my mum had been anorexic when she was at college and her period stopped, but she pulled herself back. I have a very close cousin who was bulimic when she was a teenager on my mom's side. And then on my dad's side, I had another cousin who was anorexic. So some doctors I spoke to suggested there's a genetic component in my family. And I find it hard to separate genetics as in a physically inheritable trait with learned behaviors. And I personally suspect in my family, it was learned behaviors. Women in my family express anxiety through food. We have overeaters and undereaters in my family. So I think just food is our way of communicating. And of course, you have genes and you have environment, but sometimes environment can impact on genes as well. So it may be totally, a totally. bit mixed. It is totally mixed up. And if I'd been born somewhere else in a different family or had you know different life experiences, would I still have been anorexic? Like, who, who can know? Like, you, It's impossible to say. I'm sure environment and genetics do mix. What was your thought process when you stopped eating? What did you think would happen? What I felt when I first started to not eat was that my body was changing in ways that I didn't like. I had an image of myself that I liked, which was a skinny little girl, which is what I had been. I had just turned 14, and I noticed that my tummy was getting rounder and my legs were getting a bit bigger than I liked them to be or that they had been. And I just wanted to go back to being that skinny little girl because I associated that girl with feeling happy and carefree. Suddenly I was 14. The girls in my school were starting to have boyfriends. You know, people were starting to snog boys at parties. I found all this 
completely terrifying. So although in my mind, I, I physically wanted to be a child again, but really emotionally, I wanted to stay a child. I was very emotionally immature and I wasn't ready for teenage years yet. In one of the remarks that struck me in the book, you said, I just need to be thin enough so I can eat what I want without getting fat. Yes, I, that was a mantra for years. I kept thinking, if I'm this weight, then I'd be able to go to the corner shop and get a toffee crisp. It wouldn't matter because I'd still be thin. But there was never a point when I thought, okay, this is the weight. This is thin enough now. Whatever weight I got to, I always needed to be thinner. So it was a total mirage, whatever I was thinking. Obviously, if you take that to the logical extension, you would die as tragically some anorexics do. Mm -hmm. Did that enter your thinking at all? Oh, very much so. Obviously, not at the beginning. You don't think like that. But after my first admission, I was admitted to hospital nine times. And after my first admission, when I came out, I was really spinning out my head. My head was just more crazy than ever at this point. And I did want to die from anorexia. I'd read this book about a girl called Catherine Dunbar, which was written by her mother, Maureen. Catherine died from anorexia. And I read this book and, and I envied her. I thought she was able to do this amazing thing of starving yourself to death. Like Then people would see how strong I was and how I don't need anything. But this idea of not needing something was so appealing to me. The idea of, of physical need for something was completely repulsive to me when I became anorexic. And I think that is true for a lot of women. You know, whether it's sex or food or love, I think a lot of women have this fear of looking needy in a funny sort of way. And the idea of, of like not needing anything is very attractive. That's why thinness to a certain degree is always in for women, because it shows that you don't need things. You're not greedy. You're not compulsively devouring anything around you, whether it's food or men or whatever. And so I wanted to show, look, I don't need anything. I don't even need water. Like, look how chapped my lips are. And also, I thought it was the only way around this, because the idea of eating anything was terrifying. I just could not cope with the feelings that I knew it would bring on. So the only solution was to not eat. So yeah, great. If I died, then there would be a problem. But when I say that, it sounds like I just wanted death. It's not quite that simple. I, I didn't want to kill myself, because that would be cheating in my mind. What I wanted was to be the best anorexic in the world. There seems to be a sort of competition, and particularly in one of the hospitals you were in, in terms of the person who can eat least, who can lose the most weight. Anorexia is an incredibly competitive disease. It's one of the reasons why I didn't put in, in my book any, any of the weights that I got to, the amount of food I was eating, the specific amount of exercise I was doing, because I know from when I was ill, I would read memoirs of other anorexics and then set myself a target to be more than them. Like you say, anorexia tends to be suffered by relatively high achieving girls or women who are naturally competitive anyway. You go from wanting to be the best in your maths class to being the best at anorexia. Also, you want to be the thinnest because that is very reassuring. It's, it's kind of self-soothing. So if the idea that someone is eating less than you or weighs less than you is absolutely anxiety provoking. But it's not that you haven't got interest in food, because one of the things you talk about is collecting recipes and cutting them out <laughs> and reading them as a sort of food porn, I suppose. No, oh, completely pornography. I mean, that was the closest I got to erotica for years, <laughs> was reading recipes from the Sunday Telegraph. I mean, anorexics do tend to be fascinated by food because they're starving. I think a lot of people think anorexics aren't hungry, which I don't understand how anyone could think that. How do you not understand the human condition? Like they are physically starving themselves in front of you. All they can think about is food as much as they say they don't want it. And they don't want it, but at the same time, desperate for it. So yeah, I thought about food all the time. I know what I'm like if I miss a couple of meals, desperate to eat. So what must have been appalling pangs of hunger 
Mm. How did you not eat something? How did you <laughs> compartmentalize that? You can, and you you can get a bit of a high from not eating. Um, but I think for anorexia, it's more that like however bad the hunger is, you know that the feelings you'd have if you ate would be worse. The guilt definitely is worse than the hunger. You mentioned you didn't put any details about your weight in the book. Mm-hmm. The other thing, you were in four different hospitals, I think, Mm -hmm. and you don't name any of the hospitals. Was there a reason for that? (laughs) Um, Well, I am critical of some of them. And so I thought I should just lay off. If people ask me directly, I will tell them. I also think it's kind of obvious where I was. Some of them, I think it's fairly obvious. Yeah. you know, and, And also I name certainly my last psychiatrist, Janet Treasure, who is still based at the Maudsley. I was under her for Hospital 3, which is the Maudsley, and Hospital 4, which is the Bethlehem. But yeah, the, the first one, I, my psychiatrist there was so terrible and ended up having his medical license stripped. And I sort of felt I should spare the hospital this attack. But, you know, if anybody Googles him, they can find out. It's not complicated. Yeah. In all, you spent, I think, more than two and a half years mm-hmm. in hospital. And these weren't short hospital stays. I think the first time you, you stayed for 12 weeks. And it seems to have been both a blessing and a curse because, yes, you did put on weight, mm-hmm. but you also learned about anorexic strategies such as laxatives and razor blades. Yeah, um, this is the problem with hospitalization in that it saves your life, but you pick up the anorexia superbug there. And also, yeah, my, my admissions were between three to six months for each time. And, you know, you're on a ward with all these other girls and women and you all have the same mentality and you're eating six times a day together. It's basically boarding school. Um, but all you're doing is talking about anorexia and food. So, you know, you swap tips. There was a very sweet girl I was in hospital with on my second admission who taught me how to make myself sick, for example. Very sweet. Very well, she was very <laughs> girl. She was very ill. And then I'm sure I taught girls how to like exercise secretly without the nurses seeing, which was my technique. So yeah, you, you do all that. And also you pick up anorexics want to look ill. I mean, this is the other thing I really wanted to get across in the book is that anorexia is not about wanting to be thin. It's about wanting to look ill so that people know you're unhappy without you having to say it. I think a lot of girls and women find it very hard to articulate unpleasant feelings, quote unquote, whether it's being mad, bad, sad, anxious, distressed. So this is a way of, of communicating that without saying it. And so the anorexics in hospital would do things to show how ill they are, you know, whether it's like crumbling up all their food and then eating it crumb by crumb, hiding food up their sleeves. I mean, that's also so partly food avoidance, but it's also to show how sick they are. And so you look around at the way other people express their illness and you pick it up. I certainly did. And in one hospital, it seemed that the anorexia patients almost managed to outwit the medical staff. Yes. So that was at the Maudsley. There were three women who were just very dominant personalities and the nurses didn't know what to do. And they were also bullies. They would steal the weight charts from the nurse's station and tell the rest of us, we know who weighs the most, we know who weighs the least. I'm sure they were probably bullies in their normal life, but you know, no one knows how to bully an anorexic better than another anorexic. They'd say things like, oh, you look like you enjoyed your food, which is the worst thing you can say. It's just the worst. And the nurses did not know what to do with them. And the rest of us started copying them, not in the bullying, but in taking three hours to eat a meal, two hours to eat a snack. It was kind of chaos. And it only stopped when they were separated off our table and then things calmed down a little. I don't know whether this is positive or negative, really. You talked about in some ways you liked being in hospital because you felt a relief of being with people who understood you. Yes. And also I was able to eat there. I mean, that's the other thing I think people don't understand. Obviously, an anorexic doesn't want to go to hospital because they don't want to put on weight. But when you're in hospital, there is this huge relief that you're eating and it's not your fault. 
you know, the nurses are making you eat. And finally, you're not hungry all the time. And also it's someone else who's stopping you from exercising all the time. When you're out in the outside world, the responsibility is all on you. If you don't do a certain number of sit-ups a day, well, you're going to be the one thinking about it and hating yourself for it at night. When you're in hospital, you can't do that because you're watched by a nurse 24 hours a day. So it's not your fault. So there's, there's that abdication of responsibility, which you get in hospital. And knowing that when you leave hospital, you will then plan to lose that weight. Yes. And that's a great reassurance too. You have this idea in your head and you think, I'm smarter than all the doctors here. They don't know that when I leave, I'm going to lose all the weight. And of course, all the doctors know that because all anorexics think that when they're in hospital. But I was generally shocked to see one hospital suggested electroconvulsive therapy, which fortunately your parents refused. Yeah. And everyone else I was on the ward with uh, had it. Wow. It was very, very much the norm. They gave it to all the girls. And I interviewed one of them in the book, Alison, and and she got it. And she said, you know, she thinks it damaged her. She didn't need it. She was very underweight. She was, I think, about 21 when it happened. I mean, the idea of shooting electric volts through a six stone 21 year old's head. I mean, it's just yeah, absolute insanity. And yet that doctor very much was a big fan of it. You feel you're getting into one flew over the cuckoo's nest territory. Yeah. Or, you know, when you think back to um, like Rose Kennedy, who is the lobotomized Kennedy sister. I mean, sure, it's just so primitive. And OK, yes, this was a long time ago now. It was 1992. That's not that long ago. Yeah. I'm sure it still happens in some places. I think a lot of doctors, two things. First of all, I think they mistake comorbidities for the illness. So the reason this doctor liked to give everyone ECT was because he said we were all depressed. Well, of course we were depressed. We were starving. Yeah. The depression is an offshoot of the anorexia. Sometimes it's part of the anorexia, but you can't diagnose it when someone is so underweight. And the other thing is there was a real attitude then, and I'm sure there still is in some places now, of doctors being like, okay, we're just going to fix these girls. We're just going to give them this medication. We're going to shoot electric bolts through their head because we don't know what the heck else to do. And they're not listening to logic. And they're obviously mentally screwy. And that just doesn't work. As the wonderful Agnes Ayrton says in the book, there is no medication for anorexia. And I think that can't be said too loudly either. And you also make the point that what may start as a mental illness and also becomes a physical illness as well. Yeah. And then one is feeding back into the other because we, yep. we know a lot more now about how metabolic disorders, depression, lots of mental psychiatric illnesses are linked. Yes. So it's very likely, therefore, that this will exacerbate whatever is going on. Yeah, of course. And, you know, as you become more and more malnourished, your thinking just becomes more and more screwy. And of course, you're depressed. And of course, you're anxious. Because you're, you know, not eating anything and your brain is being starved and your electrolytes are all over the place and you're having heart arrhythmia. It's all sorts of things that are feeding into each other. And then the physical depletion exacerbates the mental screwiness. So everything's just in a terrible Gorgon's knot. And you were given Prozac and lithium. <laughs> Shortly afterwards, you developed seizures. And we don't know whether that's a result of the drugs or a result of the anorexia. Well, it happened within, honestly, within half an hour of me being given the lithium. So it was my second night in hospital. I was totally hysterical because I was being made to eat, which I sort of hadn't really understood when I was checked in for this, my first admission. And so the doctor said, well, give her some Prozac and lithium. Now I was 14 years old. We don't need to get into weights here, but I was extremely underweight. Sure. And so the idea of you know, giving me these serious drugs that were for depression and bipolar disorder, neither of which I had, is so mental. Yeah. And first they gave me the Prozac. And then 10 minutes later, they gave me the lithium. And 30 minutes after that, I had a girl mal seizure in my bedroom. 
which I'd never had before in my life. And there have been studies since saying that you shouldn't give Prozac to children under a certain age. I was 14. And of course, it's not just about age with these kind of serious medications. It's also body weight. In fact, the studies are negative for Prozac in children. Yeah, very much so. There's no clinical reason for giving it. No, I mean, very much so. And it can be very dangerous. And I was also extremely underweight, which also has a biological effect on the medication. And I then suffered from seizures about once a month, sometimes twice a month for the next 15 years. And now I, I haven't had one in three years, which is the longest since wow. I was 14. My personal feeling is that it completely messed with my brain chemistry, but it's impossible to prove now. When you are looking at whether a drug has caused a side effect or not, one of the things you look at is the time mm. between taking the drug and the effects. And certainly in your case, that's a quite a short. Yeah. And considering I'd never had them before, and it was a real massive grand mal seizure, and I was out for about an hour, which is a very long time with a seizure. Yeah. It was really scary. Sure it was. I'm glad that doctor has been stripped of his medical license. What seems to happen, although to an outside observer, you're putting on weight, so they might think Hadley's getting a bit better, but you're actually suggesting the book, the mental aspect of anorexia had taken greater root. Yes. And that's not to say you shouldn't put on the weight because you you have to stay alive. Yeah, absolutely. And also you cannot improve mentally until you improve physically. But that doesn't mean that when you improve physically, you will improve mentally. Like in my case, I needed nine admissions to get better. But what I am saying is people shouldn't mistake physical improvement with a mental one. It's not a guarantee. And illustrating, I suppose, your skewed perspective, you said earlier that anorexics want to look ill, not thin. Mm -hmm. But you asked your sister if she was envious of you when you were at your thinnest. Yeah. Why did you think your sister would also want to look ill? I just assumed everyone would want to be as thin as me. They just weren't strong enough. So it's not that I thought I looked so gorgeous. Beauty was not a factor at all. It was more like that I could circle my upper arm or, you know, how much my hip bone poked out. That to me was beauty. So I just thought everyone, surely everybody wants to be like this. Everybody wants to have to shop in the children's department at Gap. Who wouldn't? Honestly, I just thought this is how everyone is now. I think you said your sister just sort of gaped at you. (laughs) My sister just thought I was totally insane, which I was, to be fair. And And my poor sister, she's 15 months younger than me. So we were always very close. And this really tore us apart for about 15 years. It took her a long time for her to forgive me for having ruined her childhood with this. And it took me a long time to sort of forgive her for having had a nice, normal teenage life that I hadn't had, which is obviously insane. But we are very close again now. And one thing that does seem to have been essential for you is even though your exams were delayed and you did your A-levels late, was continuing your education, it gave you something to cling on to even at the worst. Yes. For me, that was the most important thing, to still have something in the outside world, something to get better for, something to remind me of what I was missing outside. People weren't colluding with my desired delusion that anorexia was the world. I needed to know there was still school going out there. And also it meant that when I did get better, I was able to rejoin the education system. Whereas all the other girls who were in hospital with me who were around my age, they all dropped out of school because that's what doctors told them to do then. I was lucky I had a therapist who said not to. Yeah. But all the other girls I know dropped out, all of them. I'm not saying it's like a natural causation or whatever. Maybe it's just coincidence, but all of them either took much, much longer to get better than I did or died yeah. or are still chronically anorexic. I just really cannot stress enough how important it is to keep the education going as much as possible. 
but it does seem that even at your illness, you had some sort of self-awareness thinking about your healthy self and your unhealthy self. Yes and no. I mean, yes, in that at first, like the first six months, I just kind of assumed, okay, I'll get better, you know, at some point and go back to school and everything will be fine. Couldn't quite imagine how I would eat at school, but it never occurred to me that I would be sick forever. And then by the time of my fourth admission, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to be sick forever. And yet I still kept up my schoolwork for some reason. There was still that good girl part of me that wanted to do my English work well and get good grades. Maybe I was just bored in hospital. I don't know. But I still did keep up my schoolwork. But I was beginning to think, particularly once I was in the Bethlehem, which were the last three or four admissions, that I would be in hospital forever because all the other women I was in with were women there were, were much sicker than the ones I'd been with before. And some of them were in their 50s and had been in and out of hospital their whole lives. I just thought, oh, okay, this is what my life is because I can't eat outside hospital. So I'll just keep not eating, losing weight, coming into hospital, being fed up, doing that cycle. Like you say, like hospital in some ways is bad because it normalizes. Look at this woman and that woman, this woman, like they're fine. They've been doing this for 35 years and I'll do that too. So it normalizes it. It also, as happened to me, it suddenly makes it real. And you think, oh, wait wait a minute. These women have been in hospital for 30, 40 years. Is that really all I'm going to do with my life? So that can also be a wake-up call, which it eventually was for me. I mean, I think you talked about an anorexic patient who was having a tantrum at the age of 32, and you thought, I'm not going to be doing that when I'm 32. And I don't know why I thought that. I mean, it's like the trigger that when someone said I was normal, I don't know why that then spun me out. And I don't know why I suddenly thought, oh, I don't want to be doing this when I'm 32, because that woman had tantrums at most meals. Somebody had a tantrum at most meals. And you just look at them and be like, "Eh, your turn. Did you? Oh, of course. I would say, you know, why do I have the corner piece of pie? Corner pieces were a very big thing in hospital because it meant you had pastry on two sides of the pie. Of course. Which is unbearable. Everyone's very obsessed with the amount of pastry they had. Does it have pastry topping? Do you have two pieces of pastry? And so I would always get upset about things like that. Why do I have a bigger piece? Why do I have more mashed potatoes? Why do I have this? We all objected. And when someone had a tantrum, you would just think, yeah, you got more mashed potatoes. (laughs) So I don't know why on this particular morning I thought... I don't want to be doing that when I'm 32. But I did think that. And that started shifting things inside of me. The therapist you mentioned earlier, your your eating disorder therapist, Mm -hmm. seemed to have made a huge difference. She made all the difference. I call her JF. I'll just say her name. It doesn't matter. Her name was Janet. And the reason I don't give her full name is because she still works and I don't want to take away her anonymity or anything. But she saw me as an individual rather than an anorexic who had all tick boxes. So my first doctor, the one who (laughs) gave me the lithium, he just saw us all as anorexic cliches. Like, ah, yes, another middle-class, privately educated, 15-year-old, identical cliches and treated us such. Whereas Janet really understood me. She understood me better than I understood myself which is what you want from a therapist. And no one had done that before. And even though I was such a cliched anorexic being, yes, white, middle class, privately educated, father in finance, etc. She didn't treat me like that. And she really was interested in the way my mind worked. So when I left hospital for the ninth time, I'd gotten my A levels at this point, and I started losing weight again. I had a place at university. And she said to me, okay, if you keep losing weight, we're not going to put you back in hospital because you enjoy it too much, which I'd never actually admitted to her, but she knew. And we're going to tell the university to retract their offer. And you are going to live at home with your parents. And they're going to have to hire a nurse to watch you. This is like all my worst nightmares. It's nothing against my parents. The idea of living at home 
as an anorexic, everyone knowing I was like this weird, freaky, Boo Radley person on the street who lived in their parents' house, had a psychiatric nurse watching them all the time. Like everything about this was so shameful to me. And losing this place at university. And so that was it. I started to stabilize my eating. So she completely got you. She understood me so well. And all the various things that had happened to me as a kid, which in no way are bad, not like I suffered any terrible abuse, but things that contributed to this great sense of shame inside of me, she understood. And she also gave me a new way of looking at them, which I'd never thought about before. And that changed everything. And she also felt that continuing your education was really important. So she was the one who insisted I stay in school. Whereas, like I said, all the other psychiatrists I'd come across, and I came across a lot when I was ill, all said, these teenage girls need to give up their studies. They need to focus on their recovery. That, that was the great buzzword, focus on your recovery. And they all said, the school is exacerbating their illness because they put too much pressure on themselves and it makes them too anxious. And therefore, they need to drop out entirely. And I really cannot stress enough how wrong <laughs> that thinking is. Because then basically all that's left is the illness. You've stripped everything else away. Like, what else do you have to get better for? All the other girls, when they would leave hospital, they would go home to their mom. They were like 19. They would like do some volunteering at their local Oxfam or whatever and just have no life. They had no qualifications, no friends, no connection to any institution. Whereas I was very lucky. I was able to slot right back into the school system because I kept up my GCSEs and my A-levels. And then I just went to university. I wasn't in any sense fully recovered, but I had something else to think about. And I had a future. When you have nothing, you have no future. It's so dangerous to do that. And I've been hearing a lot from other girls and women since the book came out. And the saddest ones to me are these letters I get from these 40-something women, women my age, still living at home with their parents or still in and out of hospital. Yeah, All of them dropped out of school when they were like 15. I've been talking with a parent whose daughter dropped out of her school when she was 15 and she recently died at the age of 33. It's so awful. And I just really think it's so important to not cut them off from the outside world. You think if you'd seen Janet earlier, you might have recovered earlier? Maybe, possibly. I mean, certainly the longer the illness goes on for the more entrenched it gets. Although, as my wonderful psychiatrist, Dr. Treasure, always said, there's always hope. So I don't want to make anyone feel despair out there if they've had it for a long time. There is always hope. Quite possibly, if I'd seen Janet then. On the other hand, maybe I needed for it to run its course. I don't know. I don't know. And obviously, we don't want to give people despair, but it clearly is a difficult disease to treat. Mm -hmm. It has a high level of mortality, I think the highest of any psychiatric illness. A third die, a third have it for life, and a third recover. It's really pretty gloomy statistics. Today, enhanced cognitive behavioural therapy mm -hmm. has shown some success. Mm -hmm. So that helps. And there is some more understanding and sympathy out there, but it is still a very naughty disease, as you say, both physical and psychological. And the earlier it is treated, the better. And that is a very easy thing for me to say, because it's very hard to get appointments. I know that. And the hospital beds are very stretched. And particularly after COVID, I don't know if all the beds are even back on the wards. And I really do strongly believe that parents shouldn't take it on by themselves. All the emotions when you see your child so ill. It's just terrible. I hated seeing my mother so upset and I resented her being so upset and I hated myself for making her so upset. Part of the reason I needed to go to hospital why I didn't want my mother to be at home with me and a nurse was because I just couldn't bear seeing the pain I was causing her. It's much better to take it out of the house in a way. Once you'd done your A-levels, you'd gone to Oxford, mm -hmm. your relationship with anorexia had eased a bit, but you still had a somewhat dysfunctional 
<laughs> relationship with food. And you'd sort of developed a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. So do you think it's important that recovering anorexics continue to get therapeutic support? Oh my God, so much. And it's very hard because a lot of eating disorder support services only treat you when you're underweight, but the weight is just part of it. And anorexia, like I say, is often an expression of other things that are going on. So my anorexia, once I got to a certain weight and was stabilizing and my brain chemistry was kind of calming down, it then muted into OCD. And I was very obsessive about hand washing and my hands are always bleeding and I just looked weird. And I was completely paralyzed with paranoia about calories flying around in the air. Someone ate a sandwich and there'd be crumbs on the door handle and I would then touch the door handle and the crumbs would get in my mouth. Like I had all these ideas, which are all just OCD ideas. They're the same as, you know, other people's OCD about germs, for example. So it did mutate into other things and it was a real problem. And then it mutated into addiction. You took various drugs as well. Yeah, I didn't even enjoy it. I just took a lot of cocaine <laughs> over a long, long period. And it was my way of trying to get out of my head and also in a stupid way trying to calm my anxiety, whereas actually there's nothing more anxiety provoking than cocaine, really. Um, and it took a long time to get out of it, out of these self-destructive behaviours. Also, you've missed a lot of your normal teenage years. So your emotional development was delayed because you weren't doing all the things that teenagers would normally do because you spent so much time in hospital. Yeah, I hadn't ever spoken to a boy until I went to university. I didn't get my periods until I was 19 or 20. So I was very physically behind and very emotionally behind, very sexually behind, certainly. You know, I had blocked my puberty, which is the point of anorexia in a lot of ways. I was trying to stop growing up. And then suddenly you recover and you realize you're in a 20-year-old's body and leading a 20-year-old's life. And it's extremely disorientating. What's your relationship with food like today? Um, so my relationship with food, I mean, it's good. Uh, it's pretty good. I think people would say, if they spend time with me, they wouldn't necessarily notice anything. I'm probably quite rigid in my palate in some ways, but a lot less rigid than a lot of people out there who's, who are allegedly healthy. I have high levels of, it sounds weird, but like a sense of disgust in my head. If I look at a food, I'll think of a million reasons why it's disgusting. And I have to really work to shut that down. And it's just another way to take out the enjoyment of food. And it's not about calories. It's not like I only think that about high calorie food. You know, my brain will start doing that to a carrot, for example. I'll start thinking this, that, and the other. But I really work to shut it down and to eat as normally um, as I can, especially because I have three children now and I don't want them to see me eating in a weird way. Is there any part of your brain now that can sort of think back to when you were at your illest with anorexia? Oh, easily. The period of being anorexic for me is probably the most vivid of my life. It really wouldn't surprise me if I woke up tomorrow morning and actually I was back in the Bethlehem Hospital. All this since had been a dream. I personally don't think there's any risk of me being anorexic again. Maybe that is blithe and I should be careful about saying that, but I'm very aware of it. And particularly because I now have a daughter, I'm so hyper aware of not perpetuating habits. But yes, I, I know exactly how I thought and how I felt. And I totally understand it. When I've met women in later life occasion, I've thought, gosh, they exercise a lot. <laughs> you know, it's raining. Surely you don't need to go out and exercise now. And just little things like that. And then, of course, you discover that actually, although they appear to be fully functioning now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The truth is they were anorexic and that's their sort of coping mechanism now. 
Yeah, it's, it's both a coping mechanism and kind of like keeping your toe in a bit. I know that about me too. It's so hard to explain my thing with food, the things I do and don't like. It's like just another way to make food slightly more complicated than it is for other people. The issue isn't, do I enjoy it or do I not? It's, can I accept it or can I not? And it's not, will it make me fat or will it not? It's, it's none of that. It's more like, can I accept it in my mentality? And, and that is definitely a hangover from the eating disorder. I wish I could just totally stifle it. But there's a part of me maybe that holds on slightly, even though my life is a million trillion times better without it. And I would give anything except the lives of my children to never have it again. I am grateful every day that I'm not anorexic. So it's bound up with so many other kind of emotions. It's not just food for you. No, it's not. It's something about pleasure for me. That's definitely what it was about for me. It's about denying pleasure. I do this with sleep too, like things that are very natural for other people that give them a you know, sense of relaxation and release. I somehow make slightly more complicated in my head. I mean, the thing that I do, which drives me insane, I'll just be drifting off to sleep and suddenly a thought will pop in my head like, or oh, you should go to the loo because you don't want to wake up in the middle of the night or you need to check you lock the door or you did da, 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 and it will snap you out. So that feeling of just drifting, I don't get. There's always like something trying to stop me. And it's the same with food. It's like, I can't just enjoy it. There's like a million reasons in my head. Like, where did this come from? How is it made? Like, it's a stupid thing. So you think, can you just relax and enjoy this, you crazy woman? Natural human activities, I somehow want to stick a spike in in some way in my head. And I really work to not give in to that. Hadn't you touched on this a moment ago? But for a parent who suspects their child is becoming anorexic, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give them? Well, again, I know this is hard, but I would say first and foremost, get professional help, whether it's talking to your GP, getting in touch with someone at CAMS, although I know the waiting lists in some areas are horrific. Even talking to the school nurse, a lot of schools are very aware of what's going on, particularly at schools with girls. But parents need help. I know some parents disagree with me on that and they want to take care of their daughters. And I understand and respect that. But I just think it's too much for a parent. And in some ways, I think it's also not healthy in a lot of cases, because for a lot of girls, anorexia is about both wanting to stay close to their mother and wanting to pull apart from their mother as they start to grow up. And for the mother then to become the nurse, it can complicate things in a lot of ways. The mother should not feel this is all on her. It's not on her to cure her child. This becomes a way bigger problem than just the parents. Don't let your relationship with her just be about food. Don't just talk to her about food. Don't make her think that's all your relationship is now. Try to do things with her that she used to enjoy, whether it's going to a museum or going shopping or going to see a favorite grandparent or something. Also talk about what her friends are doing at school, what her sister is doing. Like remind her of the world that's going on outside, away from her calorie counter. So all about not making it just about anorexia and reminding the daughter, or, or if it is a son, yeah, about the other things in their life too. Yeah, just don't collude with her that the world is anorexia because it's really not. Anorexic is just like sinking in this quicksand of just being in this tiny box it's just anorexia, anorexia, like keep showing them there's this window of other stuff that's going on out there. Well, Hadley, I'm so glad you made the recovery that you did. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for sparing the time to talk today. Really fascinating. And you. Thank you, Liz. This has been really, I don't want to say fun, but it has been quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very glad to hear that. Great talking to you, Hadley. Bye. Thanks so much, Liz. Bye. Hope you enjoyed the latest podcast. And a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker and sign up to the podcast mailing list 
at whatyourgpdoesn'tellyou.com. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now.